Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Caleb, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well, Will. Uh, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. Um, so my name is Caleb Watney. I am the co-founder of the newly launched Institute for Progress. Um, we are a Washington, D.C.-based uh, think tank. Uh, we cover sort of a range of tech, science, and innovation policy issues, um, but kind of high-level three issues that we're spending a lot of time on, especially during this initial launch period, are um, meta-science, sort of the science of science. How do you change the way that, uh, especially the federal government, uh, funds, structures, and incentivizes science, and how can we get more break, breakthrough research through that process? Uh, two, immigration, with a special focus on high-skilled immigration. How can we make it easier for scientists, engineers, mathematicians from all over the world, the best and brightest, you know, to come and live in the United States? Um, and then three, biosecurity, which we think of as kind of both how do we prevent future pandemics? Obviously, that's uh, very relevant coming out of COVID, um, but also kind of how do we pick some of the low-hanging fruit in biology? Uh, it seems quite plausible to us that say, uh, you know, mRNA vaccines, we could have had them 10 years ago if we had had a similar burst of sort of funding and urgency. And so what other kinds of, uh, you know, low hanging fruit are, are still around and available for us in the field of biology? So those are kind of our, our three initial areas, but uh, we're growing quickly. I'm sure we'll <laughs> expand into other areas, but it's sort of motivated by this concern of uh, accelerating the, the pace of progress in science, technology and uh, innovation. I, I love that, and I have many political qu- economy questions about think tanks and, and how they work. But but first, I, I want to dig in and and say, uh, ask this question. It, it seems like uh, you're 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 forming this institute based on progress, which uh, you would only do that if you thought progress perhaps had slowed down or something like that. Can, can you talk about, like about that? Is there your sense there's something like great stagnation that things have slowed down since the '70s, and we do need to do something about this? Potentially, yeah. I think it's at least, you know, not off the table that progress is slowed. I think it's probably slowed down. Now, uh, there's sort of a number of competing theories about why progress is slowed down. Uh, maybe it's within our control and maybe our institutions have kind of gotten worse. Maybe it's uh, the inevitable byproduct of ideas getting harder to find. So yeah, it, it's not entirely clear. I think probably progress is slowing down for a number of combination of issues. One, I I do think that probably our institutions are more sclerotic. Uh, They've kind of just grown stodgier. You kind of see this, say, in science funding, where we're funding a increasingly older and older and sort of more um, homogeneous uh, group of scholars at the same set of institutions, and then setting up a system of incentives that really that pushes them to do maybe incremental research rather than breakthrough research. Uh, And then in the the built environment, we've kind of set up a, a variety of uh, adversarial legal uh, claims that make it very hard to actually build things in the in the physical uh, world. Both you know new uh, housing development projects, new subways, uh, new uh, mass wind farms. You know basically anything we need to kind of prepare for the future. It's pretty difficult to actually build. So I think that's one factor. I, I think 
demographics have also probably made the issue harder. It seems like generally we're becoming a, a bit of an aging society. We're having fewer children. Uh, we're accepting fewer immigrants than we did decades ago. And kind of that that missing youth, that missing vitality uh, leads us to be taking fewer risks, uh, you know, starting newer, starting fewer businesses, leading to fewer new inventions. Um, and then three, I do think that there is some version of ideas getting harder to find. It also seems to be true that uh, as you progress, especially within existing fields, it seems like finding that next breakthrough tends to get harder and harder over time. But uh, so, so sort of for, for a mix of both inevitable and non-inevitable reasons, progress is slowing down. But I, I think there's a lot we could be doing to uh, increase its pace. So what do you think are the, the biggest levers there? Is it fixing funding? Is it, uh, you know, better incentives to get, you know, younger scientists money? What, what do you think uh, some of the best approaches are? Yeah, I think it probably depends a lot on the specific area that you're talking about. Um, I think on the whole, we think of uh, U.S. federal public policy as being a particularly high leverage uh, set of tools to sort of impact the rate of progress that, yeah, uh, the U.S. federal government is the single largest funder of especially basic science funding in the world. Um, and yet we know surprisingly little about what are the sort of the incentives and the kinds of institutions that best lead to its development. Uh, so that's certainly a factor. I think there's a lot of uh, sort of idiosyncratic problems in, in each particular area. Um, oftentimes they sort of result from many overlapping uh, systems or kludgeocracies as they kind of, uh, you know, layer together. And maybe each uh, particular change or each particular barrier, each particular environmental review you have to do is, uh, you know, totally well-meaning and maybe even good in isolation, but then sort of as they all kind of combine together, it becomes harder and harder to actually get things done. Um, so yeah, I, I think there there's a lot of different factors, but in general, I think uniting our, our focus on on U.S. federal policy is the fact that there's a lot you can do through through, through federal public policy. And maybe to, to also take a step back, I think you'd say the United States in particular is an interesting place to be working on these changes. That uh, U.S. federal public policy is not only a lever to affect the U.S. but also the world. That um, we are sort of, in some sense, a, a provider of global public goods, especially through innovation. We kind of have a lot of the frontiers of science and technology here in the United States. And so when we push those out, uh, that creates spillover benefits that the rest of the world can benefit from. Uh, internationally, you see that a lot of uh, world governments sort of explicitly base some of their decisions based on sort of how the United States uh, frames it, their drug regulation or environmental regulations or, or uh, labor markets or whatnot. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, implicit in the idea of why we choose to focus on the U.S. is that it, it's not just about the U.S., but that it actually is uh, a, an extremely high leverage point for affecting um, the globe overall. I love that. I love that. I think, uh, what's her name? Uh Shruti at George Mason, she always talks about how she, she complains about how Indian uh, bureaucrats, politicians always copy the problems that are happening yeah, in America yeah. because that's what's fashionable and they should be focused on you know specific problems to you know perhaps what's going on in India. So it, it does seem like there's a highly mimetic nature to how people think about these kind of problems. I, how do you think about changing kind of federal government policy? Uh, mechanically, I, this is seems super opaque to me. How does this work? Is it something like, you know, the staffers end up writing the stuff; they have no time. Uh, my my friend just she just went through a Senate hearing, and you know she's getting grilled about all these senators that show up and they just read these questions off of the uh, you know this document that clear was prepared by some you know young staffer who's been getting paid like you know thirty thousand dollars a year 
struggling to get by. And, uh, you know, so, so I guess my question is, it's like, um, yeah, like, how do you actually think about changing them? Is it educating, you know, staffers? Is it educating lawmakers? Is it, you know, you, I, I, you can't like bribe them, right? So, you know, like, how do you get them to uh, implement the right policy? Right. It's a tricky question. Um, and I will say, yeah, policy is not just opaque for people outside of D.C. It's oftentimes opaque for people in D.C. Um, <laughs> but Policy works pretty differently depending on the kind of thing that you're trying to change. I think the biggest difference is whether you're trying to get something done through legislation, through Congress, uh, or whether you're trying to influence something uh, through the executive agencies. Um, And in general, sort of the trade-off there is that uh, Congress can do a lot more than any particular federal agency can do, um, but it's also a much higher bar to clear. It's so much harder to get things passed through Congress these days. Uh, but Congress has created a lot of latitude for executive agencies to kind of pursue their congressionally mandated missions. Uh, and they kind of just, you know, leave the agencies alone oftentimes to kind of, uh, you know, make small tweaks here or there or spend their budgets in different ways. And again, because these federal agencies are either overseeing, you know, billions of dollars or are regulating or governing huge swaths of the economy, even very small changes to the way in which they make decisions um, can end up having a really big downstream um, effect. Uh, But yeah, it's sort of weird. Uh, if you're trying to affect uh, legislation, I think we're we're quite persuaded by the theory that um, sometimes called secret Congress. Uh, Matt Iglesias and Simon Bazelon wrote a great piece about this, I think, last year, sort of pointing out that um, oftentimes it's the issues that are the least polarized that are the ones that are actually making progress. Um, if you look at the news, you'll see a lot of headlines about issues that are, uh, you know, moving very slowly or else are failing fast. And you know, these are these big monumentous. Uh, bills, oftentimes highly polarized around issues that the electorate really cares about. They get a lot of coverage, both in the news and on late night cable television shows. And precisely because it almost gets so much attention, that makes it harder to actually have people compromise or move things forward. And so there are a lot of things that are actually happening in DC underneath the radar um, that are sort of, you know, passed as it's a small part of this, you know, big omnibus bill. And yet by itself, it's extremely important or, or it covers an issue that a lot of Americans don't necessarily think about. Uh, but matters quite a lot. Um, so I think in general, you you could say that our, our theory of legislative change is you know, some combination of, of uh, secret Congress, but it may be also combined with the fact that a lot of the most important issues are very important and indeed tractable, but very uh, low on salience, that it's much easier to get things up the, the, the ladder of political prioritization than it is to persuade someone that in fact, this opinion you have that is deeply held and that you've had for 30 years is wrong and you should adopt the other position. That's much harder than to, you know, take some uh, highly technical or idiosyncratic issue that no one really has as a key part of their partisan identity, um, but say, actually, this is really important and you should make changes, you know, X, Y, or Z to it. So uh, oftentimes that is through working with staffers. DC is a very, you know, sort of relational city. A lot of things happen based on who you know or sort of who do you trust is acting in good faith or can you provide information with? And so uh, that is a big part of why we're in DC is to take advantage of this kind of relationship building networks. Um, and then through executive, uh, it's similar sometimes. I mean, it is very relational. You have to, you know, have relationships or do education for agency staff. Um, But again, it's much easier to work on issues that are uh, low on the polarization scale um, 
that oftentimes makes them much more tractable. Um, but these agencies are, are oftentimes uh, filled with, uh, you know, career civil servants who are very good natured, care deeply about their issue. Um, and they oftentimes are dealing with a lot of uh, different sort of restrictions or, or guardrails themselves. Uh, but if, if you can persuade them that, you know, your issue on the merits is very important or in keeping with the sort of culture of the agency or what they've been tasked to do, uh, it's oftentimes possible to, yeah, make small incremental tweaks here or there. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, some of your issues seem like they they would be more straightforward than others. So, you know, uh, working on science funding, things like that seems fairly apolitical. People don't worry about that too much. Or the, there may be some things around, you know, climate stuff, which might really trigger people um, on certain sides of the political aisle. But immigration seems one which <laughs> sounds like a huge hot potato. How do you think about affecting uh, immigration policy in a robust way without, you know, uh, it seems like secret Congress would be a, a, a difficult, difficult way to get something through past uh, if it was around immigration. Immigration is definitely a much more polarized issue than, say, the other two main ones that uh, we work on, both science policy and sort of pandemic prevention. Um, but you, you'll notice that we, we've kind of chosen to work on maybe the small corner of immigration that we think is the least polarized, and that sort of high-skilled or STEM immigration. Um, and I think our, our theory is, is a couple of points. Um, one is that if you just like look and you talk to legislators on both sides of the aisle, there has been kind of this like at least in in word consensus that like oh well we can all agree that we should at least you know fix high skilled immigration and that it seems obviously good for both um, natives and for foreigners if we let in more uh, you know PhD uh, doctoral students um, you know from Malaysia or from Bangladesh uh, and that that seems to to benefit everyone across the board um, and it's been hard politically because things have sort of gotten caught up in, in sort of comprehensive immigration reform or, or nothing. And now, to be clear, you know, we'd be very in support of a comprehensive immigration reform, and there's a lot of the part of the system that we would like to fix. Uh, but unfortunately, given sort of the intractable nature of that, we think we can get a lot more progress by really focusing in on these uh, these particular components of immigration that do have broad consensus in which to native-born Americans seem the most obviously intuitive that they benefit everyone across the board. And, and you know, there's a lot of scientific or academic literature that shows this, that high-skilled immigrants end up starting businesses at much higher rates than native-born workers, that they patent at higher rates than native-born workers, they win Nobel Prizes at higher rates than native-born workers, uh, they tend to be more risk-taking generally. And so uh, it definitely, yeah, is a big boon to, to U.S. society by taking in, in these workers. Uh, now, that isn't necessarily, uh, you, know, you can make those cases, but it's still hard to sort of, uh, you know, make progress sometimes in Congress. But I will say that I think recently we're starting to see an increasing recognition of the fact that uh, sort of this all or nothing approach to immigration has been less successful. And we've basically had 30 years without meaningful immigration reform, at least on the legislative level. And uh, so, yeah, we, we've been quite interested or excited to see that there are sort of more piecemeal, individualized parts of immigration that are starting to be discussed. As just one example, we've been hard at work on the United States Innovation and Competition Act, which is sort of this big uh anti-China or sort of how do we strengthen U.S. leadership and critical technologies bill that has been going through both the House and the Senate. Uh, and the House bill has a couple of provisions that uh, we've been quite excited about that would create a green card cap exemption for STEM PhDs and STEM masters who are working in critical industries. And so uh, we're, you know, we're taking lots of meetings in the Hill and trying to uh, 
you know, put out research and build coalitions and, uh, you know, all part of this process, both to sort of increase the odds that maybe this could stick in the final piece of the legislation this time, or if not, that at least we can kind of, you know, create momentum to include this in future pieces of legislation. And socializing ideas is a big part of, of, of real policy change. But so that, that's one component of it. And maybe the other part is that there is actually quite a lot you can do through the executive to um, make it easier for high-skilled immigrants to stay in the United States. Uh, there's a whole range of programs like the O-1 visa for immigrants of extraordinary ability, which are much more flexible than I think people already realize, but have had recent changes to, to make them more flexible. And uh, it's an uncapped, unlimited uh, number of you know O-1 immigrants that can come in on this this temporary uh, visa program. And so we're you know working with folks inside the agency to improve its administration, make sure that you know things are getting processed on time, that there's clear lines of communications to individuals who might consider this program in the first place. Um, and I think that's one example, but there's other programs we're also excited about. Love that. Love that. Um, I've got another question here. It's a bit of a, a bit of a left turn, but it is related. Um, I, I think most Americans have kind of a poor view of, of Congress, of the federal government, of how effective it is. You know, I definitely do. I think like, like, man, this is just does not seem to work very well. Uh, working kind of on the inside in Washington, uh, do you think it works better than the average American thinks it does? Or is it worse? Um, I guess uh, <laughs> In relative sense, it works better than maybe most Americans think, uh, insofar gotcha. as there are things that happen under the radar. Like it is possible of, to do things, yes. It, it is possible to do things. Um, but yeah, it's still nowhere near you know, how it should be. And there's, there's lots of legislative bodies all around the world that seem to be much more functional than, than the U.S. Congress. And uh, you know, there's a lot of idiosyncratic reasons for why we've kind of ended up in this, this scenario. I do think you know, um, things like the filibuster make it much harder to actually uh, – pass legislation and govern in a country that is much more polarized. Um, and so kind of this like system of veto points that might have worked quite well in the past, but now in the system of increasing polarization, in some sense, you could say the US is like a, as a system was really made for, say, 60-40 majorities, um, as they kind of flip flop across administrations, and that's much closer to what we used to get. Um, but when you're sort of deadlocked in sort of 51-49 or 52-48, as it flip flops, uh, then it, it becomes the system of, of sort of well meaning veto points um, or, you know, checks and balances has maybe become a little bit too stringent. And, and I think on the margin, it would be better if we made it slightly easier for uh, majorities to, to pass legislation. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I'm curious, you know, uh, if you had to frame like the uh, Institute for Progress, like your kind of ideological beliefs, are they, are they just, it, they feel much more pragmatic uh, than uh, ideological, I would say. Uh, what kind of, do you have like a core set of beliefs at the Institute that you all kind of share, or is it more just pragmatic, kind of we want to make the world better uh, and, and things like that? Right. Um, so <laughs> a lot of the, the, I think the trick here is in definitions. Um, right. And so I think you could say under under some definitions of ideological, we are quite ideological right. uh, in the sense that, you know, there are a set of ideas that animate kind of what we believe and why we prioritize them that certainly are shared across the, the organization. But we do try to be quite careful to make sure that, that it, it doesn't necessarily get polarized along a particular, say, party line. Uh, and we try to, in some sense, restrict the issues that we work on to sort of a more narrow set where we think we can build uh, broad consensus so that we can be more effective in, in the long run. Because uh, I think pretty key to our vision is the idea that uh, to really create lasting change in DC, uh, 
you kind of have to have champions on both sides of the aisle. But if you just naively think that both sides are going to be roughly in power about 50% of the time, uh, it would be quite bad for our issue areas if uh, we only, you know, kind of got the investments that we thought were necessary 50% of the time. If we only were investing in pandemic preparedness uh, when either Republicans or Democrats were in office, that, that would be very counterproductive. And so uh, really for, for the long-term... Um, sort of stickiness of these reforms to make sure that there's a durable co coalition that can protect these investments going forward. It's quite key and important to make sure that you're able to communicate to both sides of the aisles in ways that they understand. Um, so uh, all I have to say, yeah, there, there are a set of ideas around, I think, progress, around human agency, around the fact that uh, in general, uh, you know, through careful human consideration, we can make the world better, that uh, especially uh, through technology and science, there's a whole array of tools we have available. Um, that I think also uh, the federal government has quite an important role to play, both in sort of incentivizing and in financing these technologies, but also in governing and shaping them. Uh, I think the idea that technology is very path dependent also kind of is quite central to our work. The idea that the order, the direction, and the pace of technology matters a lot for shaping the long-term uh, future of humanity. That simultaneously, we should be very excited about the ability of new technologies to create new wealth and new progress for humanity, but also that there are particular areas where we want to be quite careful and make sure that, uh, you know, we're investing in, say, defensive technologies um, that can increase the odds of getting a good outcome. Uh, so that's sort of maybe a, a brief set of, of some of the ideas that animate our work. That's great. That's great. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, it reminds me of a previous guest who we had on, Vitalik Buterin. He talked a lot about that. In, in, in the sense, it's like it's much more pragmatic and and kind of ideological is much more kind of a secondary thing. How do we make the world better is the, the most important thing. I, I'm curious. You mentioned technology uh, and path dependence, and there's an issue that's been uh, – widely talked about in the media in the last couple of days as we record this podcast. Um, how concerned you are you all at the Institute about AI existential risk? Um, and I know it's not currently one of your focus areas, but but I'd love to get your take on it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tricky issue, but uh, certainly one I have you know, thought about a fair bit. And uh, in in some of my previous jobs, I, I'd done a bit more work on, on AI policy in particular. Um, I think in general, AI existential risk is certainly something to uh, consider, something to be concerned about. I think uh, anytime you're dealing with uh, sort of risks that even if they might be small in absolute terms, uh, would be, you know, existentially bad, would, you know, uh, potentially uh, risk threatening large portions of humanity or all of it, uh, it's worth, you know, taking that concern quite seriously. Uh, and I, I think you don't need to necessarily get into the issues of what happens if it's 0.00001% likely. I, I think, you know, anything, I, I think we're safely within the realms, especially if you're trying to really embody, you know, epistemic humility and take seriously the fact that there's lots of smart people who studied this issue very carefully and seem to be quite concerned about it. Uh, you know, you, you can pretty easily justify, say, a 5 or 10%, you know, concern about it. Um, now, I think what's what's particularly tricky about existential risk for AI is the fact that um, it's quite unclear to us, at least, uh, what are obviously good policies you could push from the federal level um, to make this risk uh, more or less likely. And I, I would contrast it with, say, risks from um, Bio, bi biological attacks, or you know, if we have a new engineered pandemic that were to you know wipe out large swaths of humanity, it seems like there's there's uh, emerging kind of a consensus that here are you know a, a reliable set of things, five things you should do and five things you shouldn't do to to decrease the risks of an engineered pandemic, and we have reasonable certainty that they would all push in the right direction, that they would be quite likely to lead to good outcomes, um, and unfortunately in AI that that kind of consensus not, does not exist. Um, You'll get as, as many different takes on, on AI superintelligence or, or AGI as there are AI experts that you gather in a room. Um, 
And so it's something that we we follow quite carefully and and quite closely, but partially we've been hesitant to sort of I think wade out too too deep into the water uh, because it seems less less clear, less obvious what the the obviously good federal policies are. Now I will say one reason that we uh, work on say high skilled immigration is because we do think that um, for both AI but also other technologies, uh, you can increase the odds of good outcomes by changing the geography of where technological development is happening, uh, that we think for a range of technologies, including AI, you'd be more likely to get good outcomes if they were being developed in liberal democracies like the United States uh, than in countries that have a less good track record of, of human rights, say like China. Um, and so uh, by strengthening the U.S.'s you know, relative position in critical technologies like AI, I think uh, you're more likely to get outcomes that are compatible with liberal democracy. And so that, that is, I think, uh, one of the core motivating reasons to, to work on that issue, in addition to all the great benefits of immigration by itself. Kind of an operation paperclip for all the best ML engineers. Kind of get them back over here. I, <laughs> yeah, you have to be careful with you know operation paperclip when you start getting into the paperclip maximizer thought experiment. And, yeah, exactly. And that, so, yeah. <laughs> there, you there you go. There you go. Um, exactly. Um, can you talk a little bit about biosecurity? Uh, yeah, I, I remember uh, this. This kind of it, it's great intersections. Uh, I think we talked about earlier. Uh, I remember there was a great sixty minutes episode early in the pandemic where they had this plane full of. Um, you know, cruise ship passengers that had COVID, it was very early on. They flew into Atlanta, um, the Atlanta airport, one of the busiest airports in the United States. And uh, CDC just kind of waved them through into the, you know, they're all like falling over. They're dying of COVID, you know, various levels of illness. And these elderly people just kind of walked straight into the uh, the airport. You know, it's like clearly like something that should not have happened. Um, so how do we strengthen our uh, biosecurity here in the U.S.? Because it seems to not be working very well at all. Yeah, it has not been great. Um, it, it's sort of funny. I think COVID both sort of showed our, our great weakness at uh, sort of containment of especially airborne uh, transmissible uh, contagious diseases um, that, you know, we really did not have the investments in, say, the built environment um, through ventilation systems or new UV uh, systems. We didn't have very reliable uptake in terms of um, sort of group behaviors, like all wearing masks or all locking down or various things that you might be able to affect uh, transmission of the virus that way. Um, and so it, on a lot of these sort of like individual or society level uh, responses, we were quite bad. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we were also sort of one of the key destinations where mRNA vaccines were developed. And of course, that's made it you know much easier to get back to normal. And I, I, it's worth highlighting the fact that we invented a whole almost new genre of, of vaccines in the form of mRNA vaccines in, in record time. I mean, you compare this to how we how fast or how long it had taken to develop other kinds of vaccines for novel diseases. And it, it's honestly a miracle. Uh, there, there's a great New York Times article I go back to sometimes that was asking the question, I think, in like mid-2020, you know, how long will it actually take to develop a, a, a new vaccine? And they were sort of pouring cold water on the idea that it was going to be, you know, pretty soon and saying, oh, if you look at the average timeline of vaccines, and even if you try to short those, you know, you're looking at like late 2021 at the earliest. And of course, we got it at the end of 2020. And so, uh, you know, a, a whole new vaccine and sort of record time within a year was was quite remarkable. Um, but partially our success in that was actually based on previous scientific research that we had done um, in terms of understanding sort of the bases of uh, coronaviruses in general. Uh, and, you know, sort of the fact that we've been investing in things like mRNA, even though we hadn't been using them, we'd sort of been investing in new systems like that for quite a while. And so I mean, one very simple thing that we could do to prepare for future vaccines is uh, there's 26 distinct viral families. Um, 
And some of them we have a much better understanding of than others. I mean, so coronaviruses are, are one that we actually thankfully have a relatively good understanding of. And it's why we were so able to quickly target the sort of spike protein and develop a vaccine that uh, that could could target that effectively. But there's lots of others we have a much worse understanding of. And um, so one thing that we've been calling for and that I think the, the White House OSTP team has also been calling for is sort of a, a big undertaking, almost like a, a quasi-Manhattan project um, style uh, undertaking to, to really map out all 26 of these different viral vaccine families. Um, to sort of create proto-vaccines for each one of them that could be quickly uh, sort of updated once we know the specific strain. And then, you know, we could have very quick uh, virus responses or vaccine responses to any new um, viruses. So that's like one particular example, but there's lots of other things that we should be doing. We need better investment in what's called metagenomic sequencing. Uh, it's basically, it, it's the technique or the technology that allows you to identify, uh, do we know what this, this virus is or is it some new novel virus? So typically, you can do screening and compare sort of one virus against a sample, uh, but metagenomic sequencing would allow you to sort of compare a particular sample against the whole corpus of, of known uh, pathogens. And so that would allow you to very quickly know, hey, we're dealing with something that's new here that we don't have sort of existing uh, protections against. And then you could, you know, sort of put more resources on there. As I mentioned, more stuff with sort of uh, ventilation, we could use advanced PPE. There's a, a whole range of new technologies. But I think in general, you'll find we're, we're much more optimistic about our ability to say, make future responses better with new technology and with new science than with, say, uh, you know, persuading all of Americans that they should, you know, consistently mask uh, for a long time. That seems much harder to, to reliably do. But uh, new technologies um, can kind of change the cost benefit uh, in various ways. I love that. I love that. Uh, I, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, advanced PPE. Uh, this brings up a question to me about, you know, during the middle of the pandemic, we really, we did not have the strategic capacity to produce enough PPE. You know, there's like 3M in the Midwest and that was pretty much it. Um, you know, do we need to make strategic investments? Like, should we be, as a country, be making more strategic investments in things like PPE, strategic food production, uh, you know, CNC machines, you know, the machines that build the machines, machine tooling. Do we need to make more strategic investments in that so that when we have crises, we can, uh, you know, produce it here when, you know, China is not going to ship it out? Or it, it's, uh, you know, in college, it was always a libertarian argument. It's like um, that it didn't really matter. You could always trade with people. It's not going to be a problem. But the, it seems like the pandemic did turn some of these uh, thoughts on the, on on their head. Right. I think there's definitely a stronger argument post-pandemic uh, for sort of uh, resiliency or redundancy in critical supply chains. Um, and I think uh, I would I would sort of distinguish uh, redundancy or resiliency uh, with uh, sort of domestic manufacturing. I think there's sometimes a call to say, oh, let's just bring everything on home. If we can't manufacture it here domestically, then you know it, it's not good enough. Um, but really, if the goal is to make sure that we have the ability to get what we want when we want it, uh, but sometimes there might be uh, ecological crises or there's an earthquake that affects the one factory we have here in the United States. And if that's the only factory we have to produce the things we need, uh, then, you know, you end up basically just as worse off. And so there probably some portion of this is having redundant manufacturing capacity on the U.S., but it also means that we need to be, you know, thinking through uh, supply chains at a more general level to make sure that we have multiple manufacturers uh, kind of all over the world, especially for, for key critical um, things. I think for, for mask manufacturing, it's interesting. Um, Alec, my co-founder, and I uh, wrote a paper pretty early on in the pandemic, uh, basically calling for advanced market commitments for mask production. 
um, the idea was, you know, this was sort of right at the, the heat of the mask crisis. And a lot of people saying, you know, uh, we can't get enough, uh, even just like N95s for, for medical workers, let alone for the general public. Um, and people were, you know, tying scarves around their head. And it was better than nothing. But, you know, we could have been doing much better. Uh, and the argument we were making is that... Uh, in the same way that Operation Warp Speed kind of provided a lot of demand certainty for manufacturers and said, hey, uh, you know, if you guys really go all in and uh, invest in the, the fixed cost to really increase your manufacturing base, uh, we recognize that you're taking on risk. And we want to, you know, basically take that risk off your plate uh, because you are providing this public good of, you know, dramatically larger uh, manufacturing capacity for these key critical goods. And so uh, I'm glad that we ended up doing it for vaccines. I, I think we probably should have done it for, for masks as well. Because um, in previous crises, you've seen um, that mask manufacturers uh, after say swine flu sort of you know saw this this news about you know a new possible uh, vaccine or sorry a new possible virus that was going to be spreading and so they started dramatically increasing their capacity and then it turned out to be basically a false alarm and all those investments and people they had to lay off and it was really costly for them um, and so especially when you're dealing with uncertainty um, at a time when there's a public crisis uh, and it's not really fully priced in the the large public benefits you would create if you were to, uh, you know, expand in a way that is a positive EV, even if it's maybe unlikely. And so I, I think having a better appreciation for tools like advanced market amendments and this whole kind of range of uh, innovative public procurement uh, can be really important, um, both for sort of, you know, in the moment uh, crisis management, but also for more general forward looking stuff. Gotcha. And advanced market commitments are just like a commitment. The government said goes out and says, we will buy X amount of you know mass from you if you if you go ahead and produce these. Um to just kind of ensure that there will be demand if you spin up all the, these crazy fixed costs right, uh, right. to you know create things like N95s. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um Caleb, I, I'm curious, how has it been founding uh your own think tank? Uh and, and what has been the biggest challenge? Is it fundraising? Is it making connections? Is it uh is it something else entirely? Founding a think tank has been uh honestly really fun. <laughs> um That's I awesome. think uh, it, yeah, it, it, it's been great. It's gone better, honestly, I think, than, than either of us uh, expected. I think when we were first kind of starting off, we were envisioning it as just like a small two-person thing that would maybe eventually scale up. Um, but uh, we were kind of consistently challenged both by mentors and advisors, people who started their own thing, and also some of our fundraisers, uh, our donors, to sort of think more ambitiously. And uh, that, you know, there was some key niche that we were, we were trying to fill that was important and that uh, we should, you know, expand more quickly. And, and I've been very glad that, that we did that. And I've been super excited about the team that we've been able to assemble. I think we're we're doing great work. I think uh, it, it's it's also been very rewarding to see that. Uh, I think some of our, our ideas about underrated models of political engagement have so far turned out to, to have something to them. And uh, that's been rewarding. Um, I, I also personally uh, am like a bit of a generalist. And so I, I kind of like the idea that, you know, one week I'm really digging in with our lawyers on, you know, the various legal structures we need to set up. And then the next we're, you know, talking to our accountants about the different ways to set up our books. And uh, then we're, you know, in full recruiting mode and we're going to conferences, but still trying to have some time to write and uh, management and thinking through offices and, and, you know, our website design and all those sorts of things. Um, and so uh, it's definitely the kind of uh, job that I think benefits from, from having sort of wide ranging interests and uh, maybe getting bored if you're on one task for too long. Um, so I, I'm certainly never bored. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, can you talk about those underrated kind of policy levers? You, you might have mentioned them before, kind of like secret Congress and things like that, but but are there any others? 
Yeah, I think one thing is just trying to maintain as much flexibility as possible. I, I think uh, one sort of maybe bottleneck or barrier that think tanks run into is that they basically kind of overcommit on a specific agenda ahead of time. And oftentimes this happens for kind of legibility reasons for, uh, you know, trying to, to promise something to various foundations that might be supporting your work, you know, and you'll say, okay, we're going to, you know, this is our three-year plan. We're going to publish papers on X, Y, and Z. We're going to make sure we have, you know, so many op-eds published. We're going to be hosting, you know, 20 different webinars. We're going to do whatever and sort of, uh, once you've kind of committed yourself to that model, you're then really optimizing for, say, specific outputs rather than what is actually like the positive expected value swing we're taking on a particular policy opportunity. And policy windows open and close so quickly. You know, there's like a small window, a month here to really engage and really dive in. And so having the sort of flexibility to sort of take resources or or, spin up or down projects very quickly um, as these opportunities arise, I think, has allowed us to be uh, hopefully, you know, a a bit more effective. I think also focusing on issues that get a lot less coverage. I mean, so there's really like not many other think tanks, uh, if at all, that are, are kind of focused on meta-science issues and sort of how do we reform uh, not just the amount that the government is spending on federal R&D, but the the, the methods and the ways uh, and the, the funding mechanisms that they use. Uh, and so there's like a lot less competition in some sense, uh, you know, versus an issue like uh, federal privacy legislation uh, or, you know, tax, uh, tax policy or, or welfare reform or any number of issues uh, that have, you know, a lot more coverage from think tanks all across the board. Sort of your marginal contribution working in a very crowded area is much harder to have an impact. But uh, if you can find, you know, sort of neglected, significant, attractable issues, then uh, I think it's much easier to punch above your weight. Well, how have you guys been so successful in finding neglected, tractable reasons? Because you're younger, you're just like more willing, like more truth seeking. You're optimizing on truth seeking instead of something else. Like, like, what, what's your theory behind that? <laughs> I, I think most people are, 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 are you know, on net truth seeking in, in DC. Uh, as maybe surprising as that is, I think most people are, are acting in good faith. Certainly not everyone, but in general, I think you'll you'll have better predictions about people's motivations if if you kind of come in with that. Uh, I think part of it comes from the fact that we're drawing from maybe. Um, intellectual communities or networks that uh, are much more underrated in DC or haven't made as much of a splash. Uh, We sometimes think of ourselves as pulling from both this kind of progress studies community that is very focused on sort of how do you tangibly increase the rate of progress, especially through, um, you know, sort of technology and scientific uh, mechanisms. Uh, And then also from the effective altruism community um, and sort of, you know, how can you do the most good with your your time and money? And they're kind of, you know, uh, have helped popularize this network, this, this, significant neglectedness and tractability framework I was talking about a little bit earlier. I was sort of borrow it from, from that community. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting um, ideas and uh, you know thoughts on prioritization that come from those communities that because they're just like not that well known in DC lead us to kind of naturally focusing, I think, on a, on a different set of issues. So um, I, I think, yeah, I, I don't know if there's anything about us personally, you know, that makes us more, more moral or more truth-seeking. I think we've just kind of been shaped by maybe a different set of intellectual uh, influences. Um, and I think hopefully with some of the, the flexibility built into our, our model, we can have a bit more impact on those issues. That's great. That's great. Um, you mentioned effective altruism. Uh, uh, the one of the big EA nonprofits just released a hundred thousand dollar essay prize to critique effective altruism. So I have to, of course I ask, you know, like, do you have any critiques of effective altruism yourself? Like, um, and, and, and I want to preface this by saying like, uh, 
I really love EA and I, I think it's actually probably the most reflective kind of group I've ever been a part of. So uh, like, I think uh, uh, I'm not here to get cheap shots, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts there. No, no, it's funny. I mean, the hard thing about critiquing EA is that of course, probably somebody has already made the critique already and some yes. portion of the community is like trying to push it in a different direction. So like, it, one of the things I like about the community is that it is, you know, quite heterogeneous. There's people, you know, with very strong intellectual disagreements with each other, pushing it in very different directions. But uh I, I don't know if this counts. It's a bit of like a half critique. It, it's maybe a critique of where EA was a few years ago. They've started to make some changes in this direction, and and I'm excited to see those, but I, I think we could still go much further. And that would be sort of thinking about impact in areas that are much harder to quantify, are fuzzier. And I think EA very naturally sort of you know grew up in this environment where we're trying to sort of really maximize on a ter- per dollar basis. How can you do the most good in the world? And so uh, things that are very legible, uh, things that are very rigorous in terms of we, we know reliably sort of how impactful, uh, say, sending uh, anti-malarial bed net to sub-Saharan Africa is, or we know the impact of deworming pills on average and we can measure that. We can like go and directly investigate and, and see the impacts, and we can sort of know how impactful the marginal dollar spent is. Um, but for something, say, like a, a campaign uh, through public policy to increase the odds of a pandemic preparedness funding bill happening, like how much money do you have to spend to, to increase the odds of that by 20%? Like it, 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 it's almost like no way. It's, it's so... Uh, sort of path dependent. It's so uh, fuzzy. It, it happens, you know, sort of in fits and starts. And maybe over a longer time horizon, you can start to grow trends about sort of what what are the odds. And certainly, we think we have methods that that work better than average, hopefully. Um, but uh, I think EA has in the past been quite hesitant to engage in public policy because it is. It, the, the value calculation or sort of the uh, trying to figure out how much good you're doing is so much harder. Now, as I mentioned, I think in recent years, this has become much less the case. You started to see EAs caring a lot more about policy, investing more. Um, you know, we have EA donors. So certainly, uh, you know, that that's, uh, we were very thankful for that. Uh, and I think a sign that the sort of the community is starting to move on. But uh, that is, that is one thing I think we still have more to go on. Definitely. Well, and and I just say a lot of y'all's work is is connecting this, uh, you know, a lot of EA ideas to the, like you mentioned, like to to the policy space. Uh, it's kind of a twenty dollar bill on the sidewalk. You guys are picking up is the fact that you know aren't a lot of EAs that are working directly in policy. Um, is your sense? Do you have a sense at all whether Washington has changed much since you you got started? I mean, you've worked in think tanks before and and then founded one. Um, has it gotten easier to do things, harder to do things, and and what's your sense of how political polarization has moved? That's a good question and a tough question. Um, I would say, I mean, so I've been in the DC area for, you know, about seven years now, uh, which is on the one hand, like kind of a long time, but also not at all a long time on, on you know, sort of the time scale of, of policies, uh, not even, you know, a single two-term presidency by, by, by that uh, metric. Um, but yeah, I think there, there have been some changes. I mean, certainly it's this sort of like um, secret Congress thing, I think has become more pronounced that uh, the last eight years have been a time of very intense uh, polarization. And as kind of things get more and more polarized, the idea of moving slightly behind the scenes, um, that trying to deliberately not get too much public attention for, for an issue and that that might actually make it harder to to work, I think is, is somewhat of a more recent phenomenon. Uh, maybe an even more recent phenomenon, though, is that I actually wonder if we're getting slightly less polarized than maybe we were just a couple of years ago. Um, and as an example, you could say, I mean, 
I would not have bet in 2020 that the U.S. would have passed a big infrastructure bill. Uh, and yet we did. We passed a big bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, fingers crossed, but I think we will probably pass the Bipartisan Innovation Act at, at some point this year, maybe in the lame duck. But I, I think it'll probably happen. And that's, again, like a, a bipartisan investment in science and technology uh, sort of with the goal of maintaining American technological leadership. Um, I thought that there was some significant chance that sort of Republicans would just refuse to confirm a lot of uh, Biden's nominees for various, uh, you know, cabinet level positions. And yet that broadly happened, you know, there, there were nominations that, that happened. And so um, I, I think it's slightly unclear. Maybe, this is sort of a, a, maybe a bit of a speculative spicy take, but maybe the increasing focus on more cultural issues in the last couple of years has actually opened up room for a bit more uh, ideological diversity within parties on economic issues. And that's led to a bit, you know, of an easier time to actually horse trade on, on some of these key issues. So I, I don't know if that's true, but it might be one theory about what's happening. That's great. That's great. Um, well, Caleb, I, I, I'm curious, you know, uh, if I have you back on the show here in 50 years, and I am planning on doing it for another 50 <laughs> years, so this is, this is realistic, um, uh, what's the biggest impact you can imagine the Inf Institute for Progress having? Uh, well, um, I hope that in some sense we are pro not working on the same issues we are, that we've made so much progress on, on, on immigration, on meta science and on biosecurity that, you know, we've sort of called it a day and we don't have to work on those, those policy issues. And we can be working on, uh, you know, much more niche issues. Maybe we're working on sort of, you know, governance of, of Martian space law or something. Yeah. Um, so I, I certainly, yeah, we, we really hope to, to make tangible impact on those three issues, on others. I think we hope to bring increased uh, sort of technological capacity to DC, that sort of the ability to understand, foresee, and directly, proactively, uh, both speed up and shape the direction of technology will be increased in DC. Um, I hope we will have not died in, say, uh, you know, a massive comet or a bioengineered <laughs> uh pandemic or we won't have had a solar storm or any number of uh various uh you know mega cataclysmic events um so if we're all alive and if uh you know we've made good progress on some of these core issues and uh you know total factor productivity growth is up we're all at you know 200 uh k uh gdp per capita you know I, i'll call it a day it seems like we've done some good <laughs> excellent excellent i love that i love that i and, and do you feel do you feel bullish right now about uh, the the twenty the 2020s and escaping the great stagnation? Do you think uh, we will have significant uh, TFP growth over the next kind of decade? Um, I think it really depends on what we do in the next couple of years. That uh, sort of I, I think a lot of the preconditions are there. That um, you know. There's a lot of technologies that we've sort of been laying the foundations for in a long time, both artificial intelligence, some of these, you know, really interesting bio uh, technologies like CRISPR. I think someday, someday we'll get driverless cars and, you know, autonomous drones and any number of, you know, things that can change the way cities are designed and uh, increase productivity. Uh, but it's really going to be, I think, about policy. Uh, it's going to depend on what we do about clean energy. It's going to depend on whether or not we can build things in the physical world. It's going to depend on whether we can set up new institutions that are capable of, say, reforming themselves or or can, you know, get rid of old laws and establish new ones that we need. So uh, I, I hope we can. And I think there's some amount of sort of a, a can-do optimism that actually makes it more likely to happen. And so I, I will manifest into the, to the world that, yes, we will get over the great stagnation, uh, if only because we think we can. I love that. I love that. And I've got kind of one last question here that is related to that. Um, you mentioned building things in the physical world and the problems we have with that. We had Eli Dorado on. I might have mispronounced his last name. Uh, sorry, Eli, if I did. <laughs> but I, I, um, 
I'm curious, how big of a problem do you think NEPA is? And do you think, um, is, is there any promise that we'll be able to do something about it here in the next decade? I think it's it's quite a big problem. Yeah, I've been quite persuaded by Eli and other folks that have been sort of, you know, drawing more attention to, to this NEPA issue. Um, I think it is uh, maybe a, a, an understandable reaction to some of the excesses of the 1970s in terms of, you know, Robert Moses, you know, bulldozing large sections of, uh, you know, minority neighborhoods in, in New York. And we kind of said to ourselves, we're never going to let this happen again. And perhaps the pendulum, you know, went too far or some of these, you know, mechanisms meant to provide democratic accountability, in fact, don't. And especially in, if you're in such small, isolated groups and, you know, who really has the time to show up at community engagement meetings is not actually representative of the, the local, uh, you know, community there. So uh, I think NEPA and this larger set of, of issues that I would also include, you know, zoning uh, issues, and it's sort of uh, the uh, promiscuous distribution of veto points, as I think I've heard, you know, some someone say, sort of become too large, and and it, at some level we need to either move the decision level up somewhat, so that we at the you know state or national level can sort of decide, okay, yes, we actually do want to build housing, and we're not going to let you know local individual actors say, not in my backyard. Um, alternatively, at least on, on the housing issue in particular, I'm interested in this idea that um, John Myers and, and some of our friends in the UK have been uh, talking about and piloting there uh, around street votes and sort of moving. The decision level down to a point where actually the individual actors who would be benefiting from increased density are allowed to you know individually upzone their street I, I think that's an interesting approach as well oh that's really that's really cool is there is there another approach here in the united states where we go up is there a policy lever you see where we can move zoning decisions up i mean i, I don't know en- enough about the kind of federal government apparatus to to know where that's yeah possible. there's uh I mean, it's easier, much easier to do on the state level than on on the national level. There's, you know, some efforts to maybe say tie, uh, you know, transportation funding or other kinds of, uh, you know, financial incentives to actually tangibly building up. Uh, But most of this is happening on the state level. You're seeing a number of active bills in California and Oregon and, uh, you know, a bunch of other states to sort of... um, Sort of tie the hands of localities or actually use both sort of, um, you know, carrots and sticks to actually make sure that uh, local areas are building the housing that we need. That's great. That's great. Well, Caleb, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can we send people? Uh, where can people find you? Sure. Uh, probably the easiest place is uh, Twitter. Uh, we're, you know, we're quite active there as it's where actually a lot of Hill staffers are. So we try to you know, be accessible there. So I'm at Caleb Watney on Twitter. Uh, you can also follow our work um, at the Institute for Progress website, which is uh, progress.institute, not .com, not org, .institute. Um, so yeah, those are probably the, the two best places. Awesome. Thank you, Caleb. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a fun conversation. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.